Welcome to It Was Almost Real, the Pro Wrestling Hit the Pro Wrestling History Podcast, Episode 10. Hello and welcome to this episode of It Was Almost Real, the Pro Wrestling History Podcast. My name is Ken Zimmerman Jr. and this is the podcast dedicated to the history of professional wrestling between 1870 and 1920, although we sometimes stretch it into the 1930s. And again this week I'm joined by my co-host Caleb. Hello. It was easy for me to do that intro. So I've, I've, I've been noticing we've been getting a little loose on the intro. So some podcasts I listen to don't even do an intro or right. an outro, really. Very popular. Right. But then there's other really popular ones that do a really professional one. Yeah. So I think people like knowing what we're going to be talking about. So in this episode, the main topic we're going to be talking about is John the Nebraska Tiger Man Pesic. But first, the update this week. We are recording today's podcast on Friday, September 23rd, and I just finished the history of the American Heavyweight Wrestling Championship this morning. So if I ever talk to you about, I'm thinking about doing another history of a championship, just punch me right in the face. <laughs> Wasn't fun? No, but we do have a really good timeline now. And that's what today was. I finished up the last few uh, matches of what I considered the true uh, lineage, which actually was a couple years before I thought it was actually going to end. Oh, yeah? Most of this stuff later on is promotional tactics and stuff. Oh. But one of the things I found while I was doing this, the last part of the book this last week, was George Hackenschmidt actually had a handful of matches with Gotcha's training partners in early 1911 when he came to the United States. Gotch and... uh, Gotcha's manager, Emil Clank, had been negotiating with Hackenschmidt for like three years to try to get him back to the United States for a rematch. Hackenschmidt was very hesitant to do it at first because of the chronic knee problems he was having. Training was really hard. But for some reason in the late 1910, he thought that his knee problem was well enough that he could start training hard again. And he comes to the U.S. in early 1911. So I was going to talk about that mm-hmm. in the update this week, but I, I realized as I was thinking about it, that's going to get very long and very involved. So that's probably a good topic for next right. the next episode. So what happens if you're a, a historian who's writing books and you discover new information on a your current project that you didn't know when you wrote an earlier book? When do you go back and update that? Should you go back and update that? And I'm going to answer all of those questions when I go into this uh, more in-depth discussion next time. But the other thing that I wanted to kind of touch on uh, real quickly uh, is the AEW fallout. We we talked about what had happened with the punch-up and mm-hmm. backstage and everything. Everybody's still suspended right now as we talk. And I, as I told you before, I find this really fascinating from a management perspective. Right. Because I've tried to put myself in that position and what I would do. And I also 
am trying to think of what Tony Khan is going to do or not do because there's a lot of things he won't do that he should do. Mm -hmm. He should hire people with more experience in a few areas in his company, but he's not going to do that. He's going to continue doing that himself. Yeah. He should at least hire some people that he trusts to help him because the people I think that he's been relying on They've never done this before either. You know, yeah. they are wrestlers, but they don't have experience in booking and all of that kind of thing. But from a management perspective, I've always found it fascinating because if I was in his shoes, I don't see how I could keep a steal. Mm -hmm. Even though he might have been trying to defend his wife and helping his buddy who got into this punch-up. He's not a wrestler anymore. He's a backstage producer. He's yeah. not as important to the bottom line as the four of them. If I was going to get rid of anybody, and I probably would get rid of him under the circumstances, if I thought that he really had in his mind the best interest for his wife and Punk, yeah. I would try to do something for him financially. Mm -hmm. But I still don't know that I would keep a producer around that punched one of the wrestlers, no matter what the circumstances were. Yeah. So you and I both know Professional sports is a little bit different. Yeah. People have hit people and still kept their jobs. In regular, everyday America, you're working at the bank, no. you're working for the university, you're working for any company. A sharp it, word might get you out yeah, the door. <laughs> yeah. If there's a punch-up, anybody throwing punches is gone. Yeah. Uh, no matter what their position in the company is. But in a sports organization, it's a little different, particularly in this one, because the four people involved are so critical to the success of the company and I find it hilarious the fans are one thing online mm -hmm. advocating for well CM Punk can never come back yeah. well you're nuts because he's their number one star yeah. and he's the only one that's got the potential to grow well he's not the only one but he is the biggest one he's the steamroller right they would have a hard time replacing his presence because the other people they've got that are their big stars have not been able to do that and they've yeah. been there for a little bit so it's not like they're suddenly all of a sudden going to pop business bigger than it has been yeah punk's the one that's been popping business but at the same time I, i'll hear other what i was going to say is it's bad enough listening to the fans say yeah that the young bucks have got to go or cm punk's got to go because they've all taken sides yeah but the supposed wrestling journalists and i mean some people that i've respected in the past are advocating for one side or the other and it's like you guys aren't looking at this as a business there's no way you're going to take out you might take them out of executive vice presidents which they really aren't anyway yeah you might take them out of that role mm -hmm. but you're not going to fire them because that's the base mm -hmm. cm punk can grow your audience but you could disaffect your base audience by doing that yeah. um because th their fans are going to think they were done wrong because CM Punk went off on them in the press conference. Mm -hmm. Even though, if they're executive vice presidents, they should have known a lot better to go confront the person who just went off on them while everybody's tempers are up in the back. Yeah. I don't think you can really afford to get rid of any of the four of them. Yeah. And, you know, mine is a minority opinion. Because, like I said, if you go online, <laughs> they're doing news shows from some oh, of these yeah. things going... Oh, Punk's got to go, or the Bucks got to go. No, it, it, I don't think I would get rid of any of them. Um, there would be ramifications for all of them. 
CM Punk did throw punches. Yeah. Even if provoked, even though those guys should have known better, he still threw punches. Yeah. The other guys got involved too. It was physical from a, a bunch of people, so there have to be sanctions. And I would end this executive vice president because they're not acting like executive vice presidents. No. And hiring talent doesn't always work. It worked with Triple H, but I feel like hiring like talent for like producer. But the EVP, funny thing is, it, he married Stephanie. Right. And Vince started grooming him. But it didn't really work to a degree because there were a lot of wrestlers and a lot of people backstage that yeah. resented Triple H because even though he's very talented, they all said, the only reason you're in the position you're in yeah. is because uh, you married the bosses. And to be also fair to some of those criticisms, Triple H was probably my favorite wrestler in the 2000s. Yeah. I really liked him. But he was not the guy that really drew the money. He always yeah. worked with the guy that drew the money. So Stone Cold, and then The Rock, mm -hmm. and then Brock Lesnar, and then after Lesnar, Roman Reigns and Seth Rollins. He was the guy, which is critically important. You've got somebody yeah. that can carry all them guys to great matches. But there was a lot of resentments towards him. Yeah. And just about a lot of times in wrestling, talent used to be bookers too, and that always bred a lot of resentment. Yeah, Dusty Rhodes in the NWA in the 80s was always booking himself still at the top of the cards when he was in his early 40s. And the talent started to resent him after it. So I, I always, I just do find that uh, funny. And, and I'd love to say these fans nowadays, you know, you got the WWE fans and you got the AEW fans. Yeah. And, you know, they should be able to like both, which they can. You can like both. Um, but in our day, we had the same thing going on. People tended to like the territories that they grew up yeah. with. And, like, I was an NWA fan. So I like Jim Crockett promotions much better than I like the WWF in the 80s. Mm -hmm. Then uh, it was really bad in both companies because when J JCP sold to Turner and it became World Championship Wrestling, mm -hmm. WCW, it was really bad in the early 90s. And WWE was about as bad. Yeah. But then when Brett and Shawn became the main stars at WWF, mm -hmm. I became more of a fan of WWF because I like that style of wrestling. Vince couldn't go with the big guys because he was in the middle of a steroid trial, so he had to yeah. focus on more talented guys that could go. And so then I became more of a WWF fan for a little bit. And then you had the NWO invasion of WCW in the 90s, and I watched it, but that, that got bad really quickly. WWE, no. WWF, and then WWE in the... Too late. To, I can't remember when it switched over. It was in the 2000s sometime mm -hmm. over a lawsuit. I I kind of gravitated towards them, but I hated it in the 80s. I thought it was comic book wrestling. It was yeah. the antithesis of everything I liked. So we, we, we kind of did the same things. But people can like both companies. You don't have to choose one or the other. Right. You can like both, but it's no different than what it was when... I just find it yeah. hilarious that they're like, get rid of CM Punk, get rid of the Young Bucks. Well, I yeah. personally wouldn't get rid of either because I think if you get rid of any of them, you're going to hurt your business substantially. Everyone's got an opinion now, and they want you to hear it. <laughs> yep. So social media, I love the democracy and the egalitarianism. You know, people with 100 followers have a voice now. But it's also, when there used to be barriers and stuff. Yeah. Not everybody who was, you know, 
half a brick shy of a load could just get on there and spout whatever they wanted to spout. And people uh, spout some crazy stuff. Oh, yes. Don't go on Twitter. Yeah. Oh, yeah, well, Twitter, um, I've got... I still do it because I've got, like, a yeah. wrestling history club. It's fun. But you don't want to go on there and look at the posts and stuff. That <laughs> That is the most negative... Oh, yeah. I mean, people just go on there to lose their minds. So if any of the audience is still awake, what we wanted to talk about this uh, episode was John the Tiger Man Pesic or John the Nebraska Tiger Man Pesic. And John Pesic wrestled primarily, well, almost entirely during the worked era, but he really didn't like working matches, and he is famous for taking part in two of the biggest shoot contests of the 1920s. So to start this week's episode, I wanted to read a paraphrase, a section on Pesic from Hooker, the autobiography of Luthez, quick nomenclature review. A Hooker is the most dangerous professional wrestler in America when they were wrestling legitimately. Today we would call them a submission wrestler. A hook is a submission. So the double arm wrist lock, Ude Garami and yeah. Judo, um, it's an Americana. No, I'm sorry. The, the, what they call the double arm wrist lock yes. is the um, Kimura, the yeah. bent arm lock. Yeah. We call both that and the top wrist lock and Ude Garami, but they mm-hmm. call the top wrist lock Top wrist lock and BJJ, they call that the Americana. Yeah. So, so that's the difference between them. But they are uh, skilled in hooks. You know, they, they know the leg locks that mm. are banned in judo, but are allowed in BJJ. Yeah. And all that. So, Pesic was a hooker. Mm-hmm. And then you had the shooters who were very skilled wrestlers. Could be Greco-Roman, could be freestyle. But they might not necessarily know a whole lot of submission wrestling. And then there were the workers of the performers, and they were the ones who didn't really know how to wrestle, but they knew how to uh, put on a good match for fans and entertain people, but they didn't want to be involved in a contest with anybody. Pesic was a hooker. He had learned, um, obviously, from some carnival wrestlers, and he was born in Ravenna, Nebraska. I hope anybody from Ravenna, I'm not butchering that, but Ravenna, Nebraska in 1894, hence the Nebraska Tiger Man. He had performed as Ed Strangler Lewis as policeman in the 1920s, and Ed Strangler Lewis was Luthez's mentor. So in Luthez's autobiography, he captured not only his view of a lot of people, but his mentor Ed Strangler Lewis's view as well. Thez didn't really know Pesic that well. Pesic was still wrestling occasionally when Thez got in the business, but he was primarily racing greyhound horses at that time. But in total, uh, Lewis basically told Thez that Pesic was a, a really great wrestler, and he didn't mind hurting guys he knew were no threat to him, but he got scared if he was being faced with real competition, and he really didn't want to get involved in those contests. And... I'm going to struggle. I struggle with that characterization of Pesic, and you'll see why when I talk about these two shoot contests he had in the early 20s. But Lewis, I think, is really 
relying a lot on that view of Pesek from something that happened around 1930 or 1931. And this really happened. I read about it here. I was able to find in the newspapers confirmation that this is what uh, occurred. Pesek was supposed to have a shoot contest with Jim Londis. And Jim Londis was a more of a performer than a hooker, but he had legitimate wrestling skills. He did know a few hooks because he had been trained in the carnivals, but he was nowhere near the level of a Stecker, a Londos, or a Ed Strangler Lewis. Uh, he was just not at that level, and he would have never been able to beat Pesek. But for whatever reason, Pesek didn't want to take part in this contest, and he said that he had to tend to a... Uh, his horse was a sick horse. That was it. His his horse had gotten sick, which remarkably Terry Funk used like 50 years later when he wanted to get out of the WWE. My, my horse is sick. Yeah, he left a note on Vince's door. Vince, I got a sick horse. No, it wasn't a sick horse. I'm, I'm about Pesek. It is about Terry Funk. Oh, yeah. Vince, my horse is sick. I got to go home. <laughs> he left a note on the door. It wasn't a sick horse. He got thrown from his horse. That ah. was it. Ah. And that was in the newspaper. That Pesek had to cancel out of this bout with Londis around 31 because he had been uh, thrown from his horse. Mm-hmm. And he, Lewis was furious because Lewis hated Londos with a passion. Yeah. And Londos stayed away from Lewis. He wanted no part of Lewis. And Lewis said, if you'd have got in that match, he's the one that would have fell off the horse. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But, so I think that's why he characterizes him as that. But I, I think you'll probably have a hard time seeing him this way. And I think that the listeners will have a hard time seeing him this way. When you hear about the, some of the things that he did in the, the early 1920s. Mm. So the 1920s, wrestling is a worked exhibition. Yeah, Matches are predetermined. Mm. People work with each other to put on good matches. You had to be very watchful for double crosses in the 20s and the 30s. Mm -hmm. The other thing was, every great once in a while, they would have a legitimate contest to settle a promotional war. Okay. And Pesek was involved in two. Mm -hmm. Okay. So the first one he was involved in was in 1921. And I got to go back a few years before that to mm -hmm. talk about two promoters. So one is Tex Rickard. He is a boxing promoter. He is mm -hmm. the promoter that got the first million dollar gate in boxing. It was a Jack Dempsey fight. Yeah. And Rickard, anybody that knows boxing history knows who Tex Rickard is. He was the biggest promoter in mm -hmm. the teens, 20s, 30s right. in professional boxing. Because Curly was so uh, well known in the New York area because he had established his wrestling promotion about five or six years before that. Rickard and Curly teamed up on a boxing promotion. Okay. It lost a lot of money, which <laughs> was very unusual for a Tex Rickard promotion. Right. Rickard blamed Curly. Mm -hmm. Curly blamed Rickard. So to kind of get even, Rickard decides, okay, I'm going to get into the wrestling business. Yeah. And about the same time that this all happens, Jack Curley loses, because New York State Athletic Commission mm -hmm. regulates boxing and wrestling in the state of New York. Yeah. 
the New York State Athletic Commission pulled Curley's license to promote wrestling in Madison Square Garden. Okay. I don't remember the reason why. It had nothing to do with Rickard and him. But Rickard saw an opportunity because the New York State Athletic Commission thought highly of Rickard. Yeah. Rickard got the license to promote wrestling in Madison Square Garden. So now Jack Curley is frozen out of the biggest venue in yeah. New York City, his main city to promote. The problem is Rickard is from boxing. He doesn't know wrestlers. He doesn't know the wrestling people that book wrestlers. So he yeah. doesn't know Martin Farmer Burns, anybody that yeah. books wrestling. So he's kind of, he doesn't have, he wants to promote wrestling, but he doesn't have a wrestler he can promote right mm -hmm. away. But there's another uh, hooker who was trained by Martin Farmer Burns by the name of Marin Plastina. Mm -hmm. And Marin Plastina had fallen out with Jack Curley and the dominant wrestling promoters. There was only like three or four at the time, but he had had a falling out with them, and he was kind of frozen out of the big matches. Mm -hmm. So Rickard senses an opportunity and employs Plastina as this is going to be my wrestler. Yeah. But he can't find people to wrestle Plastina. So he's got the biggest venue, yeah. he's got Plastina, but he can't find someone to wrestle him because basically Curly tells everybody, don't send anybody to wrestle uh, mm -hmm. Plastina. And this goes on for a couple years. Yeah. And Rickard keeps calling Curly out in the newspapers and calling him a coward and everything else. Yeah. And there was two chances to settle this war before Pesic got involved. Lewis was more than willing to meet Plastina, and Lewis mm -hmm. would have beat him. Yeah. But Billy Sandow and Jack Curley were odd. I don't think they ever really realized... and. Curly was not a wrestler, but Billy yeah. Sandow, Ed Strangler Lewis's manager, mm -hmm. had been a wrestler. You would think he would know what he had in the form of Lewis. Probably nobody was going to beat Lewis, and you only had yeah. one or two wrestlers who were even close to his level. Mm -hmm. But they were not willing to risk Lewis, who was their world champion, mm -hmm. to wrestle Plastina. Then Stanislaw Sabisco comes back to the United States from Poland. He had been a prisoner of war during World War One. He basically... Yeah. Returned in 1914, was captured in like 1917 or 1918, and he was stuck in Europe until 1921. Yeah. A U.S. senator who was interested in Polish war relief is actually the one that helped bring him back to the United States in 1921. <laughs> Plastina starts challenging Stanislaw Sabisco as soon as he comes back to the United States. Well, his brother Vladek knows no one's supposed to wrestle uh, Plastina because he's part of that. Uh, Curly group. Yeah. But Stanislaw Sabisco announces in a newspaper, I'm more than willing to wrestle Plastina. Mm -hmm. And after Curly and them took the bookings away that they had for him in November and December that year, he fell in line and didn't wrestle Plastina either. But it was a big mistake again. Because next to Lewis, Stanislaw Sabisco was the best wrestler in the country at the time. He was yeah. not a hooker. He was a shooter, mm -hmm. but he was such a great shooter that Plastina was not going to be able to do anything with him. Right. They wouldn't let Stanislaw Sabisco wrestle him either. So eventually, after all of this goes on for a couple of years, finally, Curly's had enough, and he says, we, we, we're, we've got to meet this guy in a contest. Yeah. And so they select John, the Nebraska Tiger Man Pesic. Mm-hmm. And when they go into... The, so the match is November 15, 1921. It's in New York City in Madison Square Garden. 
And going into the match, they didn't know this beforehand, but Plastina was injured. He had an injured arm, and he wasn't in very good shape. Yeah. So Pesic could have hooked him as soon as the match started, mm-hmm. that double arm wrist lock, because he was a specialist in that. Yeah. Popped his arm, and but they wanted to embarrass and make the match look so bad that he didn't even try to hook him. He just palm slapped him, head butted him, elbowed him, and the referee ended up. He lost the match. Yeah. But he won the war because he made him look so bad and he made Plastina look so weak. The fans, within just a couple of minutes of this match, were booing because Pesic is slapping him around, butting yeah. him, head butting him, elbowing him. Yeah. And Plastina can't do anything. And the, the fans are like, this is terrible because a lot of legitimate contests aren't that exciting to watch. Yeah. They were furious. And the referee disqualifies Pesic. I want to say it was a three out of five falls contest, and he mm. disqualified three times. <laughs> <laughs> and then Pesic just walks out of the ring looking disgusted. The fans boo Plastina out of the Madison Square Garden. It was a disaster. It was in front of 3,000 fans, which was a pretty good crowd that day. Yeah. And they just booed him out of the, the place. Tex Rickard got out of wrestling promotion. After that yeah. one match that he had Madison Square Garden, Curly would get back the license to promote Madison Square Garden. Record gave it up. Yeah, and uh, Plastina actually did make peace with the promoters eventually, and they would book him again, mm-hmm. which happened a lot. Of th- I'm surprised because as quick as wrestlers were to get blackballed in the '50s and the '60s, mm-hmm. they were blackballed for a short time, but a lot of times they would let them come back in because. If we have enough time, I'm going to talk to uh, you about Pesic going into business for himself in 1926. Okay. And the story was always that Pesic had a hard time getting bookings after that, but he really didn't. Mm-hmm. He was more focused on his dog racing. He learned how to train greyhound racing dogs. Yeah. And he made millions. He made more money doing that than he did wrestling. Yeah. But now we're going to get to the second. And this is actually the much more dangerous wrestler than Plastina. Okay. He was not a hooker, but he was a shooter that could have given anybody trouble. He was an NCAA champion and he was an Olympic champion. Okay. So, in 1923, <clears throat> Jack Curley, who had just had the thing with Tex Rickard, now Jack Curley has run afoul of the Gold Dust Trio, which is Billy Sandow, world champion Ed Strangler-Lewis, and Lewis's training partner, but he was also a promotional genius, Joseph Tutsmont. Hmm. So Joseph Tutsmont completely changed. Make a note somewhere. We're going to do an episode about Mott. Okay. Because even though he, he really had the most effect on wrestling, probably in the 30s, 40s, and 50s, he gets his start in the 20s, mm-hmm. and he is a seminal figure in the history of, history of professional wrestling. They went from the old trying to make everything look like the old Matt wrestling under yeah. Mott. Mott changed it to what he called the slam bang Western style wrestling, which is normal wrestling now. Well, it's 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 more like what you probably saw in the fifties, sixties, seventies. Yeah, but there was a lot more action, a lot less. You know, there was a lot of more Matt action there because one, they were trying to make it look realistic. Yeah, 
the dirty seedy side of that is there was also a lot of gambling schemes going on at the time. Yeah. So they would be down there waiting until they got all the money that they were possibly going to get on these bets. Yeah. And then they would go to to finishes and stuff. So, But there, there were some seamier sides. But anyway, Curly runs afoul of these guys. They right. are dominating professional wrestling at the time. Yeah. And Sandow had previously worked with Curly before he and Mont had, and a lot of it was Mont's idea, they started a way of, I want to say this so people can understand it, because it was based on the vaudeville circuit. Mm -hmm. What they did was not new. They were acting like a booking office. So a booking office is, I may be a promoter, Mm -hmm. and I may have 30 wrestlers that wrestle for me. Yeah. And maybe I use 10 of them in my town, but I send 20 of them out to promoters across the country to use, and a percentage of their earnings come back to me. Mott really revolutionized that, and through the 30s, he ran the New York booking office. When things got hot there, he went to Los Angeles, and he ran the Los Angeles booking office, and then he came back and did the New York booking office again, too. But basically, you send a bunch of wrestlers under contract, more than you'll need, but you send them out to other promoters Mm -hmm. to do Martin Farmer Burns kind of did that. There was yeah. a traveling troop of them, and there was like five or six guys, because he was always training people. Yeah. So he'd have him, and during Frank Gotch's reign, it would be him and Frank Gotch traveling around the country. Mm-hmm. They would have Gotch's training partners, so that would be like another two guys. Yeah. And then one or two young wrestlers that Burns was training. Mm-hmm. So they would go to a town. If they went to a town where there was a promoter who already had, and this didn't happen that often, before the mid-teens, early 20s. If you went to a town that had an established promoter and wrestlers, mm-hmm. Gotch would take on their, their champion, and they would fill out the card with their wrestlers. But most yeah. of the time, what happened in those days, they didn't have established town promoters. Mm-hmm. So they'd get like an Empire Club in uh, Chicago or the St. Paul Athletic Club in St. Paul. Yeah. They would have a wrestler that they arrange matches for, Mm-hmm. So Gotch would come to town and wrestle that person. Yeah. And then they would have two or three more matches underneath it, usually two. Sometimes, if it was a big card, that was four matches. Most of the time, it was two, three match cards back then. Right. But they'd have Gotch's training partners in the next match, and they'd have the young guys, if they were ready for mat time, mm-hmm. they'd be in the opener, or maybe Martin Farmer Burns would get in the ring with one of them. Yeah. So basically, they were filling out the card for the St. Paul Athletic Club, who was functioning as, as the promoter. Mm-hmm. So this wasn't new. What they did, which was unique, is they had a bunch of wrestlers under contract to them. Yeah. And so if I'm Jack Curley, I also have a bunch of wrestlers. Mm-hmm. But now I can't use any of them if I want Strangler Lewis because what the Gold Dust Trio says is if you want the champion, we provide the champion, his challenger, and we fill out the card. Yeah. And you'll get a percentage and we get a percentage. And it was it was based on the the, the vaudeville circuiting. Mm-hmm. The vaudeville used to tour different cities. Yeah. And they didn't bring local acts into the vaudeville circuit. The vaudeville circuit came. That was those contracted players. They didn't. If I'm in Wheeling, West Virginia, that's all the people that are on that vaudeville circuit. Yeah. There's no Wheeling local talent they let in on the vaudeville show. Right. So that's that was what they were doing. That ticked off a lot of promoters like Jack Curley, Paul Bowser in Boston, 
who already had wrestlers under contract, Curly desperately wanted to get a match between Lewis and Vladik Zabisco, yeah. who was his top guy at the time, and he couldn't get it because Goldust Trio said, no, we provide the champion and the challenger. And Ed Strangler Lewis hated Vladik Zabisco. Yeah. They had fist fights in the ring because he just couldn't stand him. He got along fine with his brother, couldn't stand Vladik, and he didn't like Joe Stecker, professional. Nothing personal ever happened between them. It was a professional rivalry. Right. So in his second world title run, he froze those guys out and wouldn't let either one of them have a title shot. Yeah. That irritates Curly. So Curly's like, okay. He goes out and gets Nat Panther Pendleton, who later gets into... Uh, you, um, you remember the old Thin Man movies I used to have you guys watch? Yes, I do, actually. He was... Uh, the police officer. Oh, what? Yeah. And uh, at the circus, the Marx Brothers film. Yeah. He was Goliath. Oh. And he was wearing a yellow, he was wearing a blonde wig because it's yeah. dark. But yeah, he was Goliath in that as well. But at this time, he had just gotten out of college. Mm-hmm. And he had just uh, uh, got the silver medal at the Olympics. And so Curly starts billing him as the real world champion. Yeah. And demanding that Lewis wrestles Pendleton. I think Lewis would have beat Pendleton because he knew how to hook and Pendleton didn't. Yeah. Pendleton is the top shooter. But that was that was chancy. Yeah. You're talking about Pendleton was probably at least ten years old ten I'm sorry, ten years younger than Lewis. Right. You're talking about a, a kid in his he was twenty three or twenty four when that match went down. You're talking about a young guy at top physical shape that just trained for the Olympics. Yeah. That was going to be a dicey match for anybody. And Sandow was always loath to ever let Lewis go in there and get into a, a contest like that because he always says you never know what, what could happen. Mm-hmm. So once again, they call on John Pesek. And yeah. Pesek takes the match. Mm-hmm. You know, that's why I have a hard time squaring the fact that he was scared to go out there. Lewis felt that Pesek was scared to go out because he didn't want to look bad in yeah. front of the other wrestlers, like he couldn't handle somebody. Mm-hmm. But he takes this match, and it was a shoot contest for a $7,000 purse, and it happened at the Boston Grand Opera House on January 25th, 1923. Okay. So I think... I think Pendleton was 24 because I think he's born in 1899. I'm doing this off the top of my head, so yeah, that's a guesstimate. But he was eight years younger than Lewis, and he was five years younger than Pesek, if I'm right about 1899. And so for Pesek to win, Pesek basically had to beat Pendleton, mm-hmm. pin him or make him submit, Twice in 75 minutes. Yes. Right. An Olympic champion. Sounds a little hard. Yes. And so, Paul Bowser hadn't split with the Goldust Trio yet. That was coming. Mm-hmm. So, he was also aligned with them against Curly at the time. Yeah. Um, Pendleton weighed 202. Pesek weighed 190, which was a little heavy for him. He was normally about 185. Okay. Uh, kind of a wiry guy. I'll put a picture oh. of him with the show notes. More lightweight. So people can see him. He, so what would he be? He would be a middleweight UFC fighter. Okay. 
I know what you're talking about. Yeah. So, and then um, 3,000 fans showed up to watch this too, which was a good... Uh, so, Pesic was smart about this. Right. Pesic knew right away that if I don't hook this guy, I'm going to lose because eventually he's going to wear me out. He's yeah. a better freestyle wrestler, you know, right. take down, stuff like that. But he doesn't know submissions. I know submissions. That's my advantage. Yeah. He knew that he had to do that right away. And so <clears throat> he goes for uh, the double arm wrist lock, which is his, but he can't get it on Pendleton. Pendleton keeps throwing him off. And about the 35-minute mark, Pesek's starting to get desperate because he realizes he's starting to tire. And if he doesn't hurt this kid, he's going to lose. Yeah. So he realizes, well, he may have seen an arm bar before, but I wonder if he's ever seen a toehold. And so just like you have the leg locks in jiu-jitsu, they yeah. had the working toehold where they kind of bend your leg mm-hmm. and they might twist on your foot a lot. But that, if it does anything, which it's a working thing, it doesn't it's do just much. uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable. Yeah. But just like when you do those inverted heel hooks and stuff, mm-hmm. they had a version of that toehold where you got the toes and that underneath your uh, armpit. Mm-hmm. And I, I've never had anybody put it on me, and I don't want to because I don't want to find out. <laughs> I don't want to. Yeah. But he got that on him, and Pendleton at first was resistant, and then he screamed and immediately gave up because it probably tore his knee ligaments. His, his leg was definitely seriously injured. The problem with most leg locks, knee bars are a little safer but most of them leg locks are when they're twisting the leg. Yeah. You don't feel the pain until, until the ligaments late. go. Yes. You yeah. you don't feel pain. That's why they'll tell you if somebody's really got a leg lock locked in on you, your best bet is just to tap. Because when you feel pain, it's too late. Normally yeah. the ligaments have gone or they've been stretched and, and seriously injured. So, um, he submits, yells, and he yells where people can hear, stop, stop, stop. Yeah. So he clearly submits, and they get a 10-minute rest, but Pendleton, credit to him, should not have come out for the second. (laughs) His leg was severely damaged. He refused to stay in the back, went against the doctor's advice and went back out, and tried to wrestle, but it wasn't even five minutes later, and Pesek got another toehold. And as soon as Pesek put the toehold on this time... Pendleton submitted. He was smart enough to know. Now, I don't. I think it, he already had, unless he put it on the other leg, which he put it on the injured leg. Yeah. The ligaments are probably already ripped. But if you're in that situation, your body's probably in shock. Yeah. You're probably not thinking, oh, he's probably ripped. The only ligaments there are to rip. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and you're and you're going to give up. He shouldn't have been out there. You no. know, he should have just given up and everything. And. Pendleton wrestled for a couple more years, mm-hmm. but he eventually would go to Hollywood and start doing some minor film work, and then he eventually made a Hollywood career out of it. So his professional wrestling career was relatively short. Now, he still he wrestled, and I'm sure he was working yeah. most of those matches. That Those matches were worked at the time. Mm-hmm. But before this, uh, he had had a couple matches. Everything was a shoot, including the Pesic match. Yeah. And then after the Pesic match, 
I'm sure that he was working those matches. Yeah. And he was never a top contender mm-hmm. after that. I don't think so. I, I think that he could have been if he's, his heart was in it and they really wanted to make that of him. Yeah. But he would have scared a lot of people too. He mm-hmm. doesn't know how to hook. Mm-hmm. But if somebody taught him that, he'd probably have been pretty near un- unbeatable because he already had the freestyle base and everything. It's like a Jack Briscoe. Probably very few people were going to be able to stretch him. It would have to be somebody in a John Pesex league. Yeah. And if he learned how to do that or he just learned how to defend against it, ain't nobody going to beat him. Yeah. So that, that's the same thing you had with Pendleton. That's why I just, I don't, I can't see Pesek being afraid of looking bad when he was willing to take that match. Yeah. Most people would not have taken that match. Because if the kid beats you, like he's probably heavily favored to do, yeah. now you look like an idiot. Yeah. You know, it's it's going to hurt your future in the business because here's this guy barely out of the amateurs and he just beat a top professional. Yeah. How much time we got? Uh, we are 40 minutes in. Okay. I, I will do this briefly. Okay. <laughs> and then we'll, we'll review WrestleMania 17 instead of WrestleMania 13. I got Stone Cold <laughs> Steve Austin. It just wasn't the right one. All right? It was still good. It's still a really... That's probably their best pay-per-view. I read into it. Yeah, yeah no. The, the match at WrestleMania 13 with him and Bret Hart was yeah. the best WrestleMania match. And... Bret Hart was my favorite in the 90s. But right. before we get to that, let's finish up with... And I may do a book on Pesek. I'm really strongly considering doing a book on Pesek. And what I want to really look at is can I justify Ed Lewis's view of him? Mm-hmm. Or is he what he seemed to be? Because yeah. there's other reasons why you wouldn't want to get into a shoot contest with Londis. Mm-hmm. Londis was the biggest box office star of the 30s. Right. If you get in that and beat him... Even if you don't hurt him, he's probably going to be ticked that you beat him and embarrassed him. So, so now, you'll get stretched anyways. Yeah, you're not. You're yeah. going to get stretched in the wallet. Yeah. And at 31, his Greyhound business had not reached the levels it would. He was just yeah. getting into it. He started getting into it in 30 and 31. Mm-hmm. By the mid 30s, he's a millionaire. Yeah. From his Greyhound racing staple, but he wasn't there yet. So there's other reasons why you wouldn't want to do that with Londis not because you're scared of him but because I don't necessarily want to cut off this potential income stream until I see if this Greyhound racing thing works out yeah but the other one was him going in for bit going into business for himself in 1925 Stanislaus Zabisco I've already talked about it in a previous episode people can go back and listen to it it's wrestling's biggest double cross mm-hmm. he double crosses Big Wayne Munn and takes the title legitimately yeah at the behest of Stecker, the Stecker brothers, Paul Bowser, Jack Curley, all these people yeah. who had been frozen out of the promotion and who were ticked, you know, Curley sent Pendleton after him because he was ticked about it. Yeah. They get, they're part of this double cross. Stecker uh, beats Zabisco in a worked match afterwards. Mm-hmm. Lewis comes and beats Munn in a worked match after this. Yeah. And they're both claiming the world chi- championship, even though Zabisco beat Munn. They come up with some excuse, and they're both claiming, and because they're both politically connected, mm-hmm. they have certain 
athletic commissions in different states on their sides. So some states recognize Lewis, some states recognize Stecker. Yeah. The important thing for this is Stecker was so fearful of double crosses from his own partners trying to have wrestlers shoot on him. Yeah. And Stecker could beat just about anybody. Right. He would not defend the title hardly at all. He walked out of a match in Boston where Paul Bowser was trying to double cross him with Joe Malkowitz. But he trusted Pesic. Mm-hmm. He and Pesic had worked a number of matches over the years. And in 1926, when this happened, they had already worked two matches earlier in the year, one in St. Louis, mm-hmm. where uh, Pesic put Stecker over in both matches. Stecker won both matches. So they have a third match. Everything's going fine. Uh, mm-hmm. Pesic wins the first uh, fall as they planned. Right. And then Stecker's going to win the next two. Mm-hmm. Well, Stecker lets Pesic put the double arm wrist lock on him, which, yeah. remember I told you, is his pet hold, and it's a definite shoot hold. Yeah. And Pesic cranks it for real, because he's going to take the title. He's already got one fall in his pocket, so now he's going to get the second fall, and he's going to be the world champion. Yeah. <clears throat> However, the referee who was on the pay of the Stecker brothers disqualified him, and almost caused a riot, because the fans knew... Yeah, something was up. Yeah, because they see Stecker yeah. give up. And Stecker sits on the mat after he gives up and just starts crying. Because he cannot believe his friend just shot on him. If he had shot on him when they were wrestling, yeah. I think Stecker would have been fine. Because Stecker would have said, okay, we mm-hmm. want to wrestle for real, we'll wrestle for real. But he put himself in that dangerous hole. He allowed himself to be put in it. And then he couldn't escape it. Because yeah. Stecker or Pesic had it locked in on Stecker, right? But the referee just disqualified him. Back in those days, fans used to sit on these chair cushions. They start throwing the chair cushions into the ring. The police have to come and grab the referee, and all the newspapers wrote about how this referee had jobbed out Pesic, and Pesic had actually won the match. But it didn't matter. Yeah, the referee disqualified him. The athletic commission was aligned with the Steckers. There was no recourse for Pesic. The referee felt comfortable enough, which is what would have happened in modern day. He just yeah. disqualified him for nothing. <laughs> and the police had to get that referee out of the ring quick because those fans went crazy. Yeah. And after that, Stecker didn't really wrestle again until he wrestled Lewis. Mm-hmm. And what I think started out as a shoot and ended as work in St. Louis in 1928, that settled the wrestling war. Yeah. Which had really hurt the business bad for like three years. But Pesic going into business for himself, <clears throat> to me that's different than what he did with Plastina mm-hmm. and Pendleton because everybody knew it was a shoot. Yeah. This was a double cross and he double crossed a friend of his. Yeah. Who he had made big money with because those were big gates, those yeah. two matches they had had earlier in the year. Um, But... Unfortunately, wrestling has a lot of stories like that in it. But I probably will do a, a book on him at some point because I do find him fascinating. And yeah. plus, I really want to look into how this... Because according to Lewis, he learned about ground uh, greyhound dog racing mm-hmm. when he was doing a tour in Australia in the late 20s. And mm-hmm. everybody thought that after he double-crossed his friend... yeah that none of the promoters would book him again because they couldn't trust him. 
but he had bookings all through the 30s and even the 40s. Yeah. He said the real reason he was so inactive wrestling was because he was making a fortune with the Greyhound racing. Yeah. Which he started to do. So, you got any questions? Because I think we beat that thing about to death. Nah. All right. So, originally we were going to do a review of the Hitman and Stone Cold, but instead we're going to do a review of Stone Cold and The Rock, which is... So, let's be fair. Yes. Wrestling, WrestleMania 13 mm. was the lowest grossing WrestleMania, I think, to date. Is that the one you wanted me to watch? I didn't want you to watch the whole card. I want you to watch Bret Hart versus Stone Cold. Yeah. Because the lowest grossing WrestleMania of all time... Well, it might not be all time, because there might have been some before that. Were yeah. Like, but this was bad. And this was at, at a time that WWE was still, they were losing the war with WCW, mm-hmm. and they weren't making the kind of money they had made in the past. Now, a year later, when Stone Cold becomes the world champion, that's what led them to become a publicly traded company. They were yeah. making money hand over fist. Yeah. But going into this WrestleMania 13, it was the lowest grossing one in recent history. Mm-hmm. And it definitely did not meet expectations, but... Brett the Hitman Hart versus Stone Cold Steve Austin exceeded expectations. It's yeah. still in the running with Macho Man Randy Savage versus Ricky Steamboat from WrestleMania 3, uh, Brett versus Owen from I think it was WrestleMania 11. Yeah. As one of the greatest WrestleMania matches of all time. You watched WrestleMania 17, which is one of the highest grossing yes. WrestleManias of all time. And it was the second meeting between The Rock and Stone Cold. Yeah. So, The Rock and Stone Cold, their first match, Rocky was a heel, Stone Cold was a babyface. Mm-hmm. In this match, it was a babyface versus babyface. They're both fan favorites. Yeah. It's not how it would end. Yes. But, I am going to let you, since... Did you're, all of this is kind of new to you. Did Christina watch this with you? No, no. This is when she was at work. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to say, I know she was looking forward to watching some of them. Yeah. But what did you... I guess you watched the whole card. I did. So what did you think of that? You already said about... Uh, the commentary was very funny, very on point with what was going on. Which was... Um, that's not the normal... That was not the normal commentating crew for most of the 90s and the 2000s. But Paul Heyman, who's still... He's Roman Reigns' special counsel today. He was a very good announcer. And him and Jim Ross always worked really well together. They actually started commentating together going back to WCW in like 1989. Yeah. Um, So they they always worked pretty well together. But I'm going to let you talk. uh, Oh, it was wild. It was wild. Um... It, it opened with some guy pissing in the commissioner's uh, teacup. <laughs> if you was, remember was, that. Was that Jericho? And yes, Regal? it was. <laughs> so this was the Attitude Era. Yes. <laughs> this was the PG-13 era or whatever it was. So. Yep, 2001. Yeah, so yeah, you had stuff like that. <laughs> that was Jericho and Regal. I remember that now. Um, but my favorite was the title card, which was, you know, uh, Steve Austin versus... Uh, the Rock. Uh, it was a good match, and then for Vince McMahon comes out in his little T-shirt after getting his ass kicked by his son, mm-hmm. 
You know, and uh, him and Steve Austin, you know, team up on The Rock. And I got this glorious shot of The Rock chasing Vince around the <laughs> ring like their children playing Duck, Duck, Goose. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, basically, uh, Vince helps Steve Austin take the championship. And you can hear the boos. Coming from the crowd, you know, the announcers, oh, he's shaking hands with the devil himself whenever he's shaking Vince's hand. So what allowed them to become a publicly traded company was Vince McMahon versus Stone Cold Steve Austin. You know, that tell your boss to take his job and shove it thing. Yeah. And the fans didn't want to boo Stone Cold, and they definitely didn't want to see Stone Cold working with the guy that he'd been telling to take the job and shove it. Yeah. And it really hurt their business for a while. That was yeah. a big mistake, turning Steve heel. And he only had a few years left. All those injuries were piling up on him. Yeah. So in hindsight, it was a very bad decision. Yes. But they didn't know that at the time. They were trying to keep things fresh and, and all that. So when you watch that card, yes. what did you think about that compared to when you saw Harley Race versus David Von Erich. So, obviously, things got a lot more flashier, you know, more like, you know, it's it's going on instead of, like, uh, you know, it, it had a less believable side to it because before, you know, it's like an actual sporting event, it looks like. This, it was very, like you said, attitude era, like, very punchy. But it was still entertaining, you know, and... uh I think what also made the title card better is they were a lot better actors for the hitting. Because <laughs> there, there were some times during those tag teams where I'm like, oh, God, come on, guys. You should see some of the stuff today. They, they yeah. miss each other by, like, six inches. <laughs> oh, no. Yeah. And it's even harder today. Yeah. Because prior to 1993, mm-hmm. there was no UFC. Yeah. With UFC being so popular, people know what combat looks like and yeah. when you're mixing grappling and striking and stuff together and then they look at this and they're like well these guys are missing each other by a mile and who would do that so it's harder um, but there's still stuff that I find very entertaining um, the the match yeah. between Brock Lesnar and Roman Reigns well, you know, th- those are still great Yeah, there's nothing wrong with aerial wrestling because there was always some aerial wrestling. You know, Antonina Rocca goes back to the 1950s. Yeah. But it's when it's so believable, when they move so fast it doesn't register. Th- those are the things that are difficult. And yeah. people can't seem to get that through their head. You start saying, look, they're moving too fast for people to register. They don't sell anything. Things yeah. that should kill people, they hop right up from. They say, well, you're out of touch. You need to get back. No, it's not. Yeah. It looks silly. As I've said, yes. follow the rules of entertainment. Well, and that's what I also noticed, like, back then is, yeah, they were, it was goofy and they weren't taking it too seriously, but they were in it. And, like, the crowd was in it. I was enjoying it. You know? Yeah. Was there anything else that stuck out to you on that card? Uh, well, they, uh, they allowed... The Rock and Steve Austin both to bleed, so I'm like, oh, yeah, something bad's going to happen. Yeah, and you know, Vince had a pretty strict no-blood policy. They they yeah. allowed it at times, Yeah, 
Um, because they do in this, if you'd watch Bret Hart versus Stone Cold, there's there's a big blood spot yeah. for Stone Cold, just one of them. Yeah. Um, but Bret got, Bret got, they call it getting color when they yeah. bleed. Bret did that in one match. And it was when Vince had a real strict policy about yeah. it. And Vince like, Bret, what happened? He goes, I hit that the corner of that metal step and it cut me open. And... <laughs> <laughs> that's not what happened. He bladed himself, but yeah. but Vince wanted to believe it, so Vince was like, "Oh, okay, pal, thanks." Yeah, <laughs> he wanted to believe it. He didn't want to get on him. He didn't want to punish him, but he didn't want to allow people to be doing that either. Yeah, because you got to think about it. How insane! You've got all these too. right, and yeah. you've got all these bloodborne diseases now, and on top of that, you've got sponsors. You're a publicly yeah. traded company. So how would you feel if your major one of your major uh, stockholders and Vince is the biggest, but still one of your major yeah. stockholders turns on the TV one night and mm-hmm. sees some of the stuff that they got going on? AEW I think does it much worse. Yeah, where you know they got a guy with a pizza cutter. <laughs> and it, yeah, and it's like you're on national cable television. What happens if the president of the TBS yeah. just happens to look at it that day and go, what? And they don't need to do it. They've got talented people that don't need to do that kind of silly stuff. Yeah, no. This, this one was like, you know, Steve was bleeding out the top of his head. The Rock's face was covered. So whenever I saw that, too, I'm like, ah, no. Okay, so where are we at? We are at just about an hour. All right. So we thank everybody for listening this week. I, I, I've been trying to be more focused. You have to understand when you're listening to a historian go over history we tend to wander and so when I'm talking about something I'll be reminded of something else wow. and I start throwing that in and I'm trying to be more focused I promise you so in the next episode which is going to be released on Monday October 10th Caleb and I are going to talk about the new information I found uh, which I just put in the American history I'm sorry the American heavyweight wrestling championship book yeah but there is a time that I think you have to go back and edit earlier works, and we'll talk about that in the next podcast. It would have been way too involved for, for this week's show. Uh, KennethermanJr.com is the place to check out today's show notes. I'll put a picture of John Pesek up on that. And you can just go to KennethermanJr.com slash episode 10, and you can get the show notes there. And I've got a very professional-sounding outro, but I just think we're going to say goodbye for this week. So, goodbye. Goodbye. We will see you on October. You will hear us on October (laughs) tenth. There we go. Take care, everybody.